Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In every episode, I'll tell you everything you need to know about an individual bird species with a laid-back attitude. And I also tend to record my episodes outside. Today, I hiked about a mile through some calf-deep snow into the Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia, uh, near where I live in Elkins. And it's a sunny, beautiful day, and I'm hoping to hear some sounds from today's bird, the Carolina Wren. Now, if you got headphones on, you may hear a stream trickling in the background. You also probably hear some thumps every once in a while. The sun is causing big clumps of snow to fall out of the trees. Really hoping one doesn't fall on me. But it is a nice day out here and a good day to record. I'd like to start off today's episode thanking Bib and Dolly, the Dirty Bird Podcast super fans. They keep sending me some awesome updates. Um, there's a lot of bird research going on on their farm. You can see some of those cool pictures if you follow the Dirty Bird Podcast Instagram or Facebook page. You can also see some cool bird-related posts by looking up my Reddit account, username Dirty Bird Podcast, and then also looking up my YouTube channel, Dirty Bird Podcast. And there's some pretty funny comments on that, too. People can be real assholes on the internet. (laughs) I also want to thank Jay Pogo. Last episode, I played one of his voice memos, and he left a response. Here it is. What up? A little groggy this morning, this afternoon. One of them. But yeah, I'm from New York. To clear that up, (laughs) not New England. Some people are like, hey, you're from Boston? I'm like, no, I got family up in Massachusetts, and I make fun of them all the time. That's probably why you hear that little accent. But, um, yeah, the birds are flying around over here. Little, little light on the East Coast. You know, so we got a lot of raptors. You know, the little ones, the big ones, and some of the smaller ones. Here, that's about it. I love the show. It was cool. Peace. Jay Pogo, I apologize for saying you were from Boston. I'm just a podunk West Virginian boy, and y'all all sound like Yankees to me. <laughs> um, I'll have to do an episode on city birds so I can maybe help out uh, you with identifying those little raptors running around your streets. Also, a final thank you to Brandon, who keeps me updated on Instagram about the progress of his eastern screech owl nest box. I'll do an episode on them soon, Brandon, and have you on the show. 
I really appreciate the people messaging me on social media, but there's one thing I got to ask. Where are the iTunes reviews? I only have a few iTunes reviews, and one of them is one that I selfishly left. So come on, Brandon, Jay Pogo, Bib, and Dolly. Leave me an iTunes review so we can help more people find the show. All right, all right, enough begging for reviews. Um, Let's get on talking about today's bird, the Carolina wren. In the southeastern United States, this bird is very common and easily heard due to its song, which is surprisingly loud for such a small creature. The Carolina wren is a state bird of South Carolina, and if you look at the back of a state quarter for South Carolina, you'll see the Carolina wren perched there next to a palm tree. And like I said, it's tiny but loud. It was also noticed by the native peoples of southeastern America, such as the eastern Cherokee, who called the Carolina wren Alitama, and also called it Rainbird, because when it's thirsty, it will give a call for a drink with a scoogia, scoogia, and it will rain. And when the rain is going to clear, it will give a call of Gila, Gila. The scientific name for the Carolina wren is Thryothortes ludovicianus. It's a complicated history of the taxonomy for the Carolina wren. Originally, it was put in the Sylvia genus, then the Troglodytes genus. Finally, it was placed in the genus Thryothortes. Thryothortes is Greek in origin. It's a combination of the Greek word thryon, which means reed, like the plant reed, and thoros, which means like jumper. Um, so this bird is known for being in reeds and kind of jumping from one to the other. However, Thryothortes was sort of a catch-all category, this genus, when it was first made. So there were like many wren species put in it and taken out over the years. Um, As recently as 2006, molecular analysis showed that Carolina wrens were distinct enough from other members of its genus that they were removed and placed in their own genuses, leaving the Carolina wren the sole member of Thryothortes now. The species name, Ludovicianus, comes from one of the early specimens of Carolina wrens that was collected. In 1790, an English physician and naturalist named John Latham presumably shot and collected a Carolina wren outside New Orleans. So, how do we get Ludovicianus from New Orleans? Well, New Orleans at that time was encompassed within the vast Louisiana Territory, which was named after the French king Louis XIV. Louis is related to the Germanic name Ludwig, like Ludwig van Beethoven. And a Latinized version of this name comes out to Ludovicus. A couple Latin suffixes later, and we get Ludovicianus, the species name for the Carolina wren, which roughly means from Louisiana. So, why is it the Carolina wren and not the Louisiana wren? It seems the common name Carolina wren came later, and just referred to this bird's abundance in the southeastern United States. There are several subspecies of the Carolina wren. Mostly these subspecies occur on islands, such as on Dog Island in Florida, and on Cat Island, Ship Island, and Horn Island off the Mississippi coast. There are also distinct subspecies in Mexico. These subspecies have small differences in wing, tail, and beak length, as well as some minor coloration differences. Of note, the southern Florida subspecies, dubbed Mia mensis, is noted to be the richest and darkest in coloration of all the Carolina wrens. Zach, are you listening? Let me know what those Miami Carolina wrens look like. So now you know the story behind the name, but what does this bird look and act like? Well, you can check out the cover art for this episode, which shows a drawing by T.J. Ranosky, who also did our Northern Flicker drawing for last episode, and he captures this bird in his awesome style. 
But for y'all just listening, the Carolina Wren is pretty large for a wren, but still a small bird. It's only five to six inches long, and it has the typical wren body. It has a straight tail that often sticks up in the air while it's walking, and it's pretty plump. I almost think it looks like a pear. It has no neck to speak of, and attached to its fairly large head is a long, slender, down-curving bill. It is reddish-brown on top, accented on the wing and tail, with lines of black and white flecks, especially on the edges. I always like looking at the stripe patterns on its wings and on its tail. They kind of look like zebra stripes, and they're pretty cool. It has a white throat and also a white eyebrow that extends from above its eye to the back of its head. And this white eyebrow is a really good field mark for the Carolina wren. Uh, I mean, if it looks like a wren and it has the eyebrow, it's probably a Carolina wren. Except if you're kind of more in Texas, Oklahoma, and then you're in the overlap territory with its close relative, the Bellix wren. The way to tell them apart, though, is the underbelly. Overall, Bevix wren is shabbier. Um, it has gray on the upper part and then a white belly. The Carolina wren, though, I mean, it's reddish brown on top. It has that tan underbelly. It makes it look like it just crawled through some, like, clay or something like that. The house wren also looks a bit similar to the Carolina wren, but it's much smaller. It's gray, and it doesn't have that awesome white eyebrow. Very rarely you'll see a Carolina wren with leucism. Um, leucism is similar to albinism, um, but the animals don't have a complete lack of melanin. In 1959 in Baltimore, Maryland, there was one found with white stripes along its wing. Um, but in 1984 in Massachusetts, there was a completely white Carolina wren, except it still had its dark brown eyes of a regular Carolina wren. Like all wrens, the Carolina wren is a bundle of energy, and they can really liven up your birding experience. They're generally easy to hear. They're either rustling through the leaves or they'll be giving out alarm calls. And then if you're just quiet and still, they'll kind of lose interest in giving alarm calls about you and go back to their daily activities, letting you observe. And sometimes they'll get pretty close. But if you piss off these guys while you're in the woods, they will be sure to let every bird know. Um, often I'll be kind of tramping a little too loud in the woods and then I'll hear the alarm call of the Carolina wren. And it'll just trigger all the other birds in the forest to freak out. And while watching these birds is nice, in my opinion, their vocalizations are by far the most interesting thing about them. They have a wide variety of sounds. Some are well recognized, like their famous tea kettle, tea kettle, tea kettle song. This song is given by the male only and is to deter rival males from coming into his territory. While he expends a lot of energy doing these calls up to four hours a day, it is worth the work because it prevents even more tiring fights. And while only the male sings this classic song, the female is definitely involved. They do this duet call, which is so cool to hear. The male sings his tea kettle, tea kettle, tea kettle, but then that female comes in at the end for this rattle call that almost adds like percussion to the song.
The female also helps the male in some other ways. She spends more time watching for predators while the male feeds. This is likely because the male needs more calories in order to keep up his daily singing. And the male's dedication to singing is reflected in his biology, too. Studies of male Carolina wren's brains show that they have these large, dense clusters of nuclei in the premotor areas of the forebrain dedicated to song. In females, these areas are much, much smaller. And the male doesn't always sing the same song over and over again. He can have up to 36 different song variations within a season, and he may sing up to 3,000 times a day, which is pretty crazy. Carolina wrens also give a rattling alarm call. And you also can commonly hear their down-slurring chur sound. They use this sound as a contact call between mates. They also give a scolding call. I think sounds a lot like the scold call of chickadees and tufted titmice. And there is some talk of Carolina wrens as mimics. Traditionally, there are only three mimic birds in North America, meaning birds that imitate other bird calls. Those are the northern mockingbird, the blue-gray catbird, and the brown thrasher. The blue jay also mimics a lot of other bird species. Classically, it will mimic hawk calls in order to scare away birds from feeders. But many birders, and also myself, have noticed instances of Carolina wrens mimicking other bird calls. W.L. McCatty, in April of 1903, was birding one day in Bloomington, Indiana, when he heard what sounded identical to the song of a chewick. Uh, the chewick is a colloquial name for the eastern towhee. However, upon investigation, he found it was a Carolina wren perfectly mimicking the towhee's chewink call. And McCaddy also noted that historically, in Pennsylvania, the Carolina wren was referred to as the mocking wren. Eastern towhees apparently will also mimic Carolina wrens right back, and sometimes add bits of Carolina wren songs and calls to their classic Drink Your Tea song. It's hard to tell whether the Carolina wren is mimicking other birds or just has calls that are similar. I mentioned earlier that the Carolina wren scold call reminds me of chickadees. Um, renowned ornithologist Arthur Cleveland Bent details the calls of the Carolina wren that may be mimicry, writing that Carolina wrens give a loud whistle similar to that of a cardinal, a pito 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 of the tufted titmouse, the rattle of a kingfisher, the call of the flicker, and songs of the pine warbler, towhee, Red-winged blackbird, meadowlark, Baltimore oriole, bluebird, catbird, white-eyed vireo, scarlet tanager, and song sparrow. So these birds have quite the vocal repertoire, and the fact that they sing and defend their territories year-round make them a great addition to the normally quiet woods of winter. And you can hear a whole variety of sounds coming out of these birds. It's really spectacular. Historically, the Carolina wren's range was confined to the southeastern United States, with populations also wrapping around the Gulf Coast into Mexico, uh, down into the Yucatan Peninsula. 
They extend into the Midwest as far as eastern Colorado, and their range overlaps with their close cousin, Bevix wren, as I said, in Texas and Oklahoma. Like a lot of birds whose northern range is determined by the severity of winters, the Carolina wren's range has slowly been expanding north with a warming climate. And today they make it all the way up to Lake Ontario. Bird feeders also seem to have helped Carolina wrens expand their range north. Within their range, Carolina wrens are found anywhere where there are thickets and low brush. Swampland and forest edges are often good places to find them. In mountainous areas such as West Virginia where I live, um, I see them along thorny blackberry bushes. Um, they also seem to love dense rhododendrons and mountain laurel patches. Right now I'm sitting in a deciduous forest. I'm kind of like along a stream bed and there's definitely lots of blackberry bushes. Um, they're pretty sad because it's the middle of the winter, but hoping some Carolina wrens are hopping around looking for some insects to eat. And speaking of eating, like the northern flicker, Carolina wrens have a downturned bill, meaning that they are mostly ground feeders. You often observe them on the ground or close to it. They're darting among and under branches, rocks, and roots looking for bugs to eat. They'll flick over sticks and leaves with their bill to expose the bugs hiding below. A lot of people, including Audubon, compare this bird to a mouse, and it's easy to see the resemblance. They hop speedily on the ground and dart in and out of cover. They will sometimes feed higher up. Um, they've been observed feeding as much as 30 feet up in a tree, but really they're mostly on the ground. And these guys really like bugs. A dissection of 291 Carolina wren stomachs found 94% animal matter. Of that, 14% were beetles. Stink bugs made up 18%. Spiders made up 16%. And a whopping 22% was caterpillars. This appears to be their favorite food. And vertebrates aren't off the menu either. Remains of lizards, tree frogs, and snakes were found in some of their stomachs. Um, these were either likely scavenged or they were like small juvenile individuals. You know, this isn't a very big bird, so it's not like about to take down a big old rattlesnake and eat it or something. But I don't know. That sounds pretty cool. That sounds like something out of a Redwall book. <laughs> These birds do come around feeders. Um, it's pretty sparingly, and usually they're just hopping around the ground underneath the feeder. I don't really see them taking too many seeds. It looks more like they're looking for bugs, although they do up their seed diet in the winter especially. There's not as many bugs around, so they will pick at seeds. I've noticed that if I put out stuff with mealworms in it, they really love that. I hear some chickadees too. I got some chickadees up in the trees. Oh, and some tufted titmice. Peter, Peter, Peter. Hey guys, tell the Carolina wrens to come hang out. Historically, people have fed them some pretty wild stuff. Um, I saw an account of a person who used to put out ground hamburger steak for Carolina wrens to eat, and another one who would feed them American cheese. Um, I don't really advise this. Stick to bird seed. Um, these accounts were from the 1950s, though, so whatever. I guess we'll give them a break. If they do come around your feeder, um, you'll notice they're pretty fearless in their explorations. They'll look for hidden bugs in pretty much any object in your yard. They'll go into lawnmowers, fire pits, they'll comb in and out of the chairs. 
Studies have shown that they have very little aversion to new objects. One experiment I read put orange life jackets on feeders and observed how afraid it made different birds that were common feeder visitors. While every bird, especially the tufted titmouse, showed some sort of alarm at the life jacket, the Carolina wrens did not give two fucks about it and just continued to feed and explore as normal. And the breeding behavior of these birds is pretty interesting because, unlike a lot of birds, they form permanent monogamous bonds, and they defend a territory together throughout the year. This is really a change from pretty much every other bird I've talked about in, what, like 20-something episodes so far? Most male birds only care to stick around during the breeding season um, and really can care less about staying with a female throughout the winter. But with the Carolina wrens, it's all about territory, and you got to have a mate to help you defend it. Young males and widower males um, seem to be able to hold established territories by themselves, but females are unable to hold territories on their own, and so a single female is desperately looking for a mate. The males, too, are eager to have a female by their side because Carolina wren couples all around them are trying to move in and encroach on their food supply, so he needs a bad bitch to help him out. And this isn't just during the breeding season that they're defending territory. A lot of songbirds, you know, they really only care about territory when they have a nest and they need to feed for little nestlings. But these guys establish their territory and they defend it throughout the winter too. Their chirp calls are really important for communicating with each other. And together, Carolina wren couples function as what I've seen called a fighting unit with both the male and female aggressively attacking any other Carolina wren that comes in their territory. They also use their chirps to communicate about predators around them and avoid them. This chirp system is pretty complex. I could do a whole episode just on it. Um, it's almost like a Morse code system to signal different threats and how close they are if they're moving towards them or away from them. It's pretty cool. If two single Carolina wrens meet up, they will form a pair bond no matter what time of year it is. A lot of birds only bond during the breeding season, but territory is just so important for these guys that they aren't passing up a love connection. Once a pair bond is formed, females are particularly defensive towards other females trying to be home wreckers and take their territory. And this is a pretty cool fact because if you have some Carolina wrens in your backyard or you observe some on like a walking trail that you go on, chances are every time you see the Carolina wrens in that area, it's the same pair. So you can really keep tabs on how they're doing. In the springtime, these birds begin thinking not only about getting food and fighting off rivals, but also about making babies. And if you look at Carolina wrens, you might think it's difficult for them to find a mate because both sexes look completely alike in plumage. There are some like minor differences in wing length and stuff like that. But remember, only the male sings, so a lot of courtship relies on him showing off his singing prowess. He also will do some displays too for the female. The male will spread his wings in front of the female to try to entice her to copulate, and he will also feed her caterpillars which, remember, are Carolina wren's favorite food. The male will also grab billfuls of twigs and grass and then fly them to potential nest sites in order to impress the female. Like, look, I can build a nest. Look, come on, mate with me. 
Like most wrens, Carolina wrens are bold and versatile nesters, and have been known to nest in some very odd places. I'd like to just go through some of the interesting stories about odd nesting areas of Carolina wrens. Um, one of them, personally, and I've posted about this on the Instagram, was uh, I was at Punchy Joe's house, uh, the dad of my fiance Lauren, and uh, we were about to start a fire, and he had put all this wood in the fire pit and stuff, which is like a an oil drum that was cut in half, and. Uh, I go and I'm about to start the fire and a wren, Carolina wren just pops out of it. And I look in and there's a nest in there with some eggs laid. So obviously we didn't have a fire and um, we just kind of waited for the eggs to hatch and the nestlings to go off and then, uh, you know, had a fire again. But um, they have no fear in nesting in areas near humans. In 1911 in Philadelphia, a pair of Carolina wrens entered an open window of a home and nested inside a worn and torn sofa. When the homeowner discovered this, he left the window cracked for them to go in and out until they finished raising their young. In 1969, at a Boy Scout camp in Oklahoma, a pair of Carolina wrens nested inside a tent. The guy who wrote this account says like he kept coming back into his tent day after day and finding piles of sticks. He thought it was his tent mate who was leaving them, so he just kept cleaning them up, and then one day he noticed the sticks inside a tissue box in the tent and decided to leave them there. He then observed Carolina wrens coming in under the flaps of the tent and building their nest. Unfortunately, this story doesn't end well. The guy, like, left for a weekend, and um, although the nest had five eggs in it, someone else was moving into his tent and just kind of, like, threw all the stuff out. So the nest did not survive. But an account with a happier ending is from 1948 in Little Rock, Arkansas, where two women, Margaret and Ruth, watched a Carolina wren couple as they nest hunted around a house. And these Carolina wrens were like exploring around the porch, the tool shed, and then Margaret and Ruth hung up a basket and uh, the Carolina wrens decided to go in the basket and made their nest in there. And they successfully fledged five young. A case that really shows how bold these birds are in their nesting is from 1911, where a Carolina wren nested inside a busy blacksmith shop and would sometimes climb over horses as they were being shod, or it would dart amongst the sparks coming off the anvil to grab wood shavings on the floor. Interesting, from uh, reading this case, um, I learned that soft wood shavings used to be used for packing of fragile woods, basically like the bubble wrap of the 1800s and 1900s. And these wood shavings were referred to as excelsior. Excelsior! <laughs> um, other popular places for Carolina wren nests include hanging potted plants on porches, pockets of coats hung outside or in sheds, mailboxes, and even in tractors, even if those tractors are used daily. Away from human habitation, they nest in odd parts of the forest, too. They nest inside rotting stumps, in the forks of trees, in thorns and dense shrubs, and among tangled roots. They build snug, tightly woven nests, made out of a wide variety of material, from leaves, twigs, and grass, to hair, feathers, and snakeskin. If a nesting cavity is a little too large, like, say, inside a shoebox, they will usually fill it with material until there's just a small space just large enough for their nest remaining. Carolina wrens seem to almost always lay five eggs, but there are records of as many as eight. The female forms a brood patch in the spring. This is a bare patch of skin on her underside that allows more efficient heat transfer from her body to the eggs. She exclusively incubates the eggs for 12 to 14 days. And like most songbirds, once the nestlings hatch, they are completely helpless and dependent on the parents. They're very hungry, and both parents must work fervently to feed them over the two-week course it takes them to fledge. 
Two broods are usually raised in a season, sometimes three in the more southern states. And once the first batch of fledglings leaves the nest, the male is in charge of caring for them, while the female begins on the second nest in the second batch of eggs. We saw this with golden-crowned kinglets, too, who do a similar strategy to be able to raise two broods in a season. Juvenile Carolina wrens are colored much lighter than the adults, but they have their first molt in August to September in preparation for winter. With this molt, they acquire the richer, darker colors of their parents. However, most of the wings do not molt that first time, and so they have kind of a lighter color of their wings. And this can help you tell young Carolina wrens that are experiencing their first winter. Unlike some birds that molt twice a year in the autumn and the spring, Carolina wrens only molt in the fall. Their feathers take a lot of wear and tear, and often in the summertime they can appear pretty scraggly. One of the reasons why they get so scraggly is winter can be pretty hard on these birds. They're not an especially cold hardy bird, um, but much more cold hardy than many of its cousins like the house wren, who migrate south for the winter. It seems that they need roost sites in order to survive cold winter nights. They especially like to roost inside hornet's nest, specifically the nest of the bald-faced hornet, also known as paper wasp. These wasps build large basketball-sized nests out of paper pulp, and at their largest can house hundreds of hornets. In the winter, however, there are no live wasps inside these nests, and it makes a perfect little winter home for the Carolina wren. Carolina wrens seem to systematically seek out paper wasp nests to roost in during the winter, and there are many accounts of this. In 1927, just down the road from me in French Creek, West Virginia, a professor named Maurice Brooks observed Carolina wrens roosting in hornet's nests. He told his biology students about this, and one of the students, French Page, hung a paper wasp nest in his room. I'm guessing he was living in some kind of cabin because he had Carolina wrens apparently already nesting behind a picture frame in his room. So when he hung up the paper wasp nest, they moved from the picture frame into the wasp nest and then not only stayed there for the winter, but also raised a brood of young in it come spring. And there's a lot of accounts of people finding paper wasp nests and um, either because they know that Carolina wrens like them or just because they think they look cool, they hang them on their porch and then they'll notice that Carolina wrens like almost always seem to come and roost in them during the wintertime. Sometimes a good roost site isn't enough, though, and severe winter storms can decimate local Carolina wren populations. In the late 1970s, Carolina wrens were virtually wiped out from central Oklahoma after two consecutive winters had frigid ice storms. Since these guys are ground-feeding birds, snow cover really impairs their ability to find food. They're not good at digging through the snow, and they rely on windfall areas. These are areas like next to a big rock or a big tree or maybe the side of your house where not as much snow has fallen, so they're able to still access the leaf litter. This is part of the reason why defending a territory, even during the non-breeding season, is so important. If they don't fight off rivals, they're going to come in and eat all their bugs. Cold snaps during the spring can also be hard on nestlings and fledgling Carolina wrens. Sometimes these fledglings will seek out roosts to survive spring frost, such as one account in May of 2002 where several juvenile Carolina wrens roosted in a newly built northern cardinal nest to survive a winter frost. I bet the cardinal parents were pretty pissed at that. And when it's not the winter and the cold killing these birds, um, Carolina wren nests are parasitized by the brown-headed cowbirds. Um, I also saw an account of a house finch successfully parasitizing a Carolina wren nest in Oklahoma but this probably doesn't happen very often. Being a small bird, they're on the menu for pretty much every hawk, falcon, and owl, 
And since they're on the ground, they can fall prey to mammalian predators too, like minks and weasels. They harbor the usual parasites that affect most birds, like feather mites. Um, more significantly, the Carolina wren has been found to carry Ixodes ticks. Um, these are commonly known as the deer tick or the black-legged tick, and they can become infected with Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. So Carolina wrens might be kind of involved in the animal reservoir for Lyme disease in nature. Um, I will point out, though, these birds have a much lower tick burden than, say, like small mammals and rodents. And while these birds do seem to thrive in the suburbs and fragmented forests we have largely replaced North Americans' once vast forests with, I did find a study on humans' detrimental impact on Carolina wrens, especially from mercury. I found a study that focused on the North Forks of the Holston River near Damascus, Virginia. I actually stayed near this town for a month in the fall, and it's truly a lovely place. I saw lots of Carolina wrens feeding among the tangles of mountain laurels and rhododendrons that line the stream banks. Um, but this study, they looked along the South River in Rockingham County, Virginia also, which is near Harrisonburg. Hey, babe and dolly. Um, and despite both these areas being beautiful, unfortunately the watersheds contain significant amounts of mercury. I'm really glad now I didn't eat any of the crayfish I caught over near Damascus, Virginia. Um, but Carolina wrens feed on a lot of insects that are at the top of the food chain, like spiders, and so they can acquire high levels of mercury. They also eat a lot of aquatic insects that they find amongst roots, rocks, and woody debris that line riverbanks. So this study looked at Carolina wrens' feathers and how much mercury content they had, and then compared it with their success rate in raising young. They found that with higher levels of mercury, Carolina wren nesting success decreased by 34%. But despite harsh winters, mercury poisoning, and hungry predators, these birds seem to be doing pretty well. Due to their range expansion up north with the warming climate, they're experiencing about a 1.5% increase each year. Their population is estimated at around 14 million, and 89% of those are in the U.S. and 10% in Mexico, with just around like 1% in Canada. The oldest Carolina wren was 7 years old and 8 months and was captured in Florida. So that's a lot of descriptive information about the Carolina wren. Um, I want to wrap up today's podcast with some evolutionary history. I will preface this saying I don't have a lot of this portion, um, similar to the Northern Flicker, even though I dug through a lot of online research papers. The best ones required I purchase them for about like $30 a pop. Um, I don't have that kind of money. I'm sorry. But here's what I was able to glean from reading um, a lot of different papers. The Carolina wren is in the wren family, Troglodytidae. Um, I love that troglodyte, you know, uh, means like cave dweller, rock dweller, whatever. Um, it's a fairly large family with 93 members, and virtually all of them are these small birds with drab colorations but complex songs. The roots of this family, though, can be traced back to Australasia with the Passerita radiation. The dispersal of these birds from Australia and the surrounding islands such as New Guinea uh, to the rest of the world gave rise to a huge variety of songbirds, including warblers, thrushes, sparrows, and wrens. The branch of the avian family tree that eventually gave off the wrens also gave off nuthatches and tree creepers, and first began to develop around 38 million years ago. This relationship is no surprise when you look at the behavior of wrens. They cling upside down to branches like nuthatches do and crawl up vines and tree trunks like the tree creeper. However, the family of birds most closely related to wrens are the similarly small gnat catchers, which they split off from around 24.4 million years ago. 
Before this group of birds was fully evolved into wrens, nuthatches, and gnat catchers, we know today, though, they crossed the Bering Strait, which intermittently had a large landmass called Beringia between Asia and Alaska. And as early as 34 million years ago, they made this journey. So these birds have been in America for a long time, um, and it's not like they came in and, you know, that's it. Um, there was also subsequent invasions of other ancestral wren slash gnat catcher species, um, and they mixed with the existing species or then developed into their own. Um, in fact, today, North and South America contain the greatest biodiversity in the wren family, but there are certainly wrens throughout much of the rest of the world, too, like Africa, Europe, and Asia. And while they kind of made it over to North America pretty early. They didn't make it to South America until about 7 to 5 million years ago as the Isthmus of Panama slowly closed, finally completely closing around 3 million years ago. One of the birds that slowly made it down to South America to become its own distinct species is the closest relative of the Carolina wren, the white-breasted wood wren, which differentiated from the Carolina wren about 6.25 million years ago. I mentioned earlier how the Carolina wren is now in its own genus because recent genetic analysis has shown it is not as closely related to other species as we previously thought. This means that the Carolina wren is considered paraphilic with its closest relatives. I won't go into super depth about monophilic versus paraphilic. I don't even really understand it. Um, all you need to know is that while there was some kind of wren common ancestor in North America that gave rise to the Carolina wren and its close relatives like the white-breasted wood wren and Bewick's wren, and Bewick's wren, the other wrens of the Americas share a much more recent common ancestor, while the common ancestor that they share with the Carolina wren is further back in time and closer to the trunk of the phylogeny tree. Bebek's wren is the Carolina wren's next closest relative. It seems they diverged about 10 million years ago. Bebek's wren is interesting because it is a North American species also. And as I mentioned earlier, the Carolina wren and Bebek's wren's ranges overlap today in Texas and Oklahoma. However, historically, the Bebek's wren's range extended much further into the southeastern United States than it does today. It's odd to see this. Usually closely related species have diverged because they are separated by some kind of physical barrier like mountains, or they have these marketed behavioral differences in mate selection or habitat preferences. Bebek's wren and Carolina wrens likely split because of some behavioral difference. Um, there's not really a physical barrier separating them, and they seem to have coincided in similar habitats for thousands of years. But it's possible the fragmentation of forests in the southeastern United States allowed a more distant and more aggressive relative, the house wren, to move in on the Bevick's wren's nesting habitat and territory. And Bevick's wren and the house wren deserve episodes of their own, so I'll kind of keep this short. But Bevick's wren is now exceedingly rare and may even be extinct in areas it once resided, such as Appalachia. Basically, the house wren pushed it out. Um, Possibly the Carolina wren is just better at competing with the house wren, and so uh, it wasn't pushed out of any of its range, but Bebek's wren kind of had to flee to, like, more arid environments. But Bebek's wren had to kind of um, flee from the more southeastern area and just take up the more arid environments that it has in Oklahoma and Texas and across the southwestern United States. But I'm still a hopeful person. I'm hoping that there's still some Appalachian Bewick's wrens out there. Um, I'm going to keep my eyes open for them. I still can't help like looking for ivory-billed woodpeckers either, even though I know they're extinct. Um, 
So if you're in the mountains of the eastern United States and you see a small wren with a white stripe above its eye, don't just go, it's another Carolina wren. Examine it closer. Maybe it's that super rare Appalachia Bellix wren. So just to wrap up, Carolina wrens really aren't very closely related to the other wrens in the United States. Their closest relative is down in South America, and Bewick's wren is kind of like a cousin to them. It seems like they developed around 6 million years ago, and they've just been being successful in the southeastern United States and expanding ever north with the warming climate. Well, that does it for this episode. Um, I don't really have any good Native American stories, unfortunately. Um, I saw a reference to a story called The Little Bird That Could Talk by the Chittimacha tribe of Louisiana that seemed to be about the Carolina Wren, but I couldn't find the full tale. So I'll just leave you guys with my own musings. Um, unfortunately, the Carolina Wrens did not come and sing in the area that I'm at. Last night was very cold, reaching down, maybe as cold as three degrees here, um, and there's, you know, a foot of snow on the ground. So it's possible the Carolina Wrens in this area succumb to the harsh West Virginia winter. But I'm hopeful that they're still poking around and still doing okay. I definitely saw some at my backyard feeder yesterday feasting on some mealworms. Well, continue to examine the birds around your area. Write to me. Let me know what you're seeing. And as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, and our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks, everyone, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Our logo is made by TJ Ranoski, with inspiration from my beautiful fiance, Lauren. Love you, babe, even though you don't listen to the show. Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, and our outro is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Find them wherever you get your music. Send listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at dirtybirdpodcast. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Reddit, you name it, Dirty Bird's been there. in the back and I like the New York Mets and my cowboy hat.